This is Alex West, co-host of the Pulse Podcast. Today's guest is Sean Duffy. Sean is the co-founder and CEO of Omada Health, a virtual integrated care solution that helps people manage a range of conditions, including prediabetes, diabetes, hypertension, and musculoskeletal disease. Founded in 2011, Omada works with over 1,500 employers, health plans, and benefits consultants to deliver integrated care pathways for over half a million members. And earlier this year, raised a $192 million round of Series E funding led by Fidelity. In this episode, I spoke with Sean about his journey to starting Omada, launching one of the earliest virtual specialty care models, and turning Omada into a one-stop shop for employers and health plans amidst a sea of point solutions. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Sean, thank you for joining me on the Pulse Podcast. How are you? I am well, Alex. Happy to be here. We have a tradition of asking our guests this icebreaker. What did you want to be when you grew up? Ooh, astronaut, definitely. And uh, kind of still do, so I'm rooting for uh, SpaceX and the Starship. Do you think there's still a shot that you might end up in space <laughs> at some point? It's a funny, so I have a two-year-old who's just about to turn three, and she keeps asking, Daddy, can we go on a rocket ship together? And what's a funny reflection is I think that... Uh, but yeah, I'm answering, yeah, because I, I believe that by the time she is an adult, that may be feasible. So let's, uh, let's all cross our fingers for an exciting new uh, exploratory future. Well, I have my fingers crossed for the both of you. Sean, tell me about your path to starting Omada. Yeah, so happy to. So I uh, grew up in Colorado, always loved technology, and was a real computer geek uh, you know, through high school. Um, you know, in the same vein, my mom was a nurse and was interested in kind of science and healthcare. So ended up doing undergrad uh, at Columbia. Um, studied neuroscience and behavior. I did all of my pre-med recs, um, but graduated in 2006, which was just um, you know a pretty remarkable time in Silicon Valley history. And it was a you know an era where just miracles from a computer science standpoint were happening in a minute. And at night, I'd be studying that, not my you know my biochem textbook. So um, got a little bit cold feet, truth be told, to go straight to med school and saw this job at Google and ended up working there for a couple of years. And I think you know quickly realized that the worlds were not so binary. Um, and I, you know, I thought I'd, thought I'd do something in tech meets healthcare. Didn't quite know what, but went off to medical school. Uh, Harvard has a joint MD MBA program. Went off to that, and in this funny chain of events, um, between my first and second year of med school, they kind of have a curriculum requirement that you need to uh, take an internship that blends business and medicine. I came out to IDEO uh, to to spend what I thought was going to be just a, a you know summer, and then go right back to med school, and it, it um, kind of turned into Omada, and the, the rest is a. Uh, Rest is history. Eleven years later. So, what was the problem you saw in the healthcare system or in the healthcare and technology space where Omada felt like the answer and felt like the answer you had to stay at IDEO and then start Omada and drop out of medical school to pursue? Well, it's funny. I mean, at that point in time, I knew nothing about uh, the business of the healthcare system, and you know, remember, I hadn't done any of my MBA, but but um, you know, I could read a clinical study and had kind of a sense for you know what clinical problems might be solvable, and so. You know, the thesis early on was pretty pretty simple. It was, well, what are the what are the areas that digital could not just make a you know an incremental difference, but just a you know a, a transformational difference uh, in care and outcomes, and and how might one think through building a bit more of an evidence based digital health company? Because if you um if you bring your brain back to 2011, that was kind of the early days of 
you know, wearables, Fitbit was just getting started. And, uh, you know, the, the, there was kind of this health tech scene and this, you know, medical scene and kind of a lot of skepticism between the two. And on the, you know, on the tech side, like, well, we're going to disrupt healthcare from the side and like, you know, trust us. We're like way smarter and on the healthcare side. It's like, that's cute Silicon Valley, like good luck. So we kind of decided to just go first principles, like make sure that digital isn't just for digital sake. Like you need to actually solve like a real problem that has, you know, both clinical value and economic value for the system. And it has to be done in such a way that it's like way, 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 way better than in-person care because, uh, you know, otherwise you're, you're fighting inertia with an incrementally better experience, which in that's hard in any industry. I think that's just you know exponentially harder in, in a very, very risk-averse risk uh, buying market. Throughout college and growing up, I, I imagine you had these clinical aspirations of being a physician, spent some time at Google, decided, yes, I'm still going to continue this clinical path, spent some time at IDEO and started to rethink that. In the health tech space, there are plenty of physician executives leading health tech companies and payers and other health systems. And you were on that path and you would have followed what I would argue at least today is a pretty well-established role that, you know, physician still practicing part-time has that clinical, not just appreciation, but real competency and, and knowledge. You decided that Omada was worth pursuing in spite of that, at, at least back then. How do you feel like that's impacted your work as a leader at Omada? And do you feel like you lost anything by diverting off that path and not finishing medical school residency, gaining that direct clinical knowledge to leave medical school and start Omada? Yeah, no, for sure. So, uh, you know, I mean, there's always going to be a piece of me that's like, well, what would a world look like where I could, you know, practice and actually like support patients? And that, like, I'd imagine that'd be super, super fulfilling. You know, what, what gives me solace is I, I don't think the way I'm wired, I was set up to be like, you know, the, the world's best, you know, gastroenterologist or like, you know, the, the best cancer researcher. Like, I don't know if I'm, even if I tried my hardest there, my contributions to society and medicine, you know, would have been outsized. And, you know, there's kind of the old adage, like, don't follow your passion counter story of like, find the thing that's the best match for like your throughput, like figure out where you uniquely can contribute and just like triple down on that. And, and I don't, I kind of don't know why, but I'm just like, I'm a builder at heart. Like I love to build. I can't, you know, I've always loved to build. So it's kind of a question of like, I think I was drawn to medicine because, you know, it seems like a good place to give back to the world. Why not? If you can contribute, contribute to, you know, making humanity, you know, you know, healthier and, and solve kind of healthcare problems and needs. At the end of the day, as I've like served the time at Omada and you know had this kind of blessed experience of like just being in the entrepreneurial trenches, I'm like, I don't know if I would have been like that great. I would have been a fine doctor, but like my contributions at Omada are like far more significant than what I could have ever pulled off uh, had I had I stayed down that path. As um as as fulfilling as those moments of care would have been, yeah, I I think for all of the dual degree students, certainly that we know here at Wharton and elsewhere, I wonder if you're giving them a lot to think about. With this, <laughs> with this story, hopefully no one blames you if uh, uh, they decide to drop out of the the medical path. There you go. I take I take no accountability. Sean, can you give our listeners an overview of Omada, its product, and its strategy? Yeah. So, um, best way to think of this is just like yeah, any other provider, but one that focuses on care areas where it's so clear that that needs to be needs to be digital first, virtual first care. And so, you know, for us, we got our start in the metabolic space. So, uh, you know, pre-diabetes, uh, later expanding to diabetes and hypertension. More recently, we acquired a company in physical, you know, therapy or musculoskeletal disease. Um, and, you know, all of those have some commonalities. Kind of the first is 
you know, you look at what's required to optimize clinical outcomes and you really need that day-to-day-to-day-to-day support, not the every six-month visit support that the current healthcare system is best optimized to provide. Um, and you need a lot of emotional support. There's kind of a, you know, you need devices, you need pathways, accountabilities. Like there's a, um, uh, you know, it's very clear that a digital ecosystem around a, around a patient or a member can do the job far better than the existing system. So it's, it's, um, it's kind of passes the question, like, is digital important here? Mm-hmm. Like, can it be very, very, very different and much, much better? And then secondly, you got to be able to sell it. So these are huge cost drivers. You know, these carriers are really breaking the bank of the U.S. healthcare system. So, you know, there stands to be kind of a very strong economic argument to better care experiences, but done with more efficiently. That's kind of the, the purpose. And, you know, from a member experience, just to, you know, the best way is always just kind of imagine what it would feel like. So let's see of diabetes. In the current world, it's something you maybe discuss with your doctor for, you know, eight to 15 minutes every six months of your visit. And, you know, at Amada, you know, first we mail you all the hardware you need. So we'll mail you a scale, a blood pressure cuff, a glucometer. We'll write you a script for a continuous glucose meter if it's um, indicated. All those devices are cellular connected. So they just kind of work out of box. And we, from there, pair you with a care team. So you'll get a, you know, a dedicated health coach to you, a dedicated diabetes educator. Uh, we set you up kind of on a curricular path surround you with a social community and create in partnership with you, your goals. And we can very, very quickly iterate on your path toward better glucose control, you know, some weight loss, if that's you know important, important to you in the disease area. And, um, you know, I always communicate that the goal is to have it feel like you've had the paratroopers dropped in to help you. And, you know, for the first time, you've got people that are, you know, in your pocket, making a commitment to you and saying, you know, Alex, like my, my sole job and accountability is to help you be successful. And I'm here 24 seven and you can use as much time on me as needed. And that is my sole responsibility to help you be successful with your goals. And in thinking about the population you're serving today, is it fair to say it's generally members of employer-based plans as, you know, I imagine there's a health plan presence as well, you know, demographically, what does the population for OMADA look like today? The vision from day one was make sure that we had the product covered and reimbursed. So, you know, nobody had to kind of pay out of pocket, just recognizing kind of the need and, you know, that the price point would be likely out of reach for most people. So the go-to-market that evolved based on that recognition was focused uh, really early on on self-insured employers. Of course, that turns into um, work with health plans for the benefit of the, uh, you know, the listeners here, if you're thinking about a startup or an offering in the commercially insured space, you know, these employers are big customers of plans. And if they get interested, the health plans like, well, maybe Omada does have something interesting. We're happy to like take a look and that can turn into great relationships with plans, you know, begets more relationships with employers. So that's the primary focus. And we've now, we've now amassed over, you know, 1,700 and growing employers that we work with, you know, dozens of health plans. You know, it is kind of an next chapter to do government, you know, funded plans. Been trying to say no more than yes, uh, you know, on our, on our journey to make sure to stay focused. Omada is delivering virtual care and managing these chronic diseases. It seems as though, you know, every day there's a new company popping up to virtually deliver specialty care in the market. What is setting Omada apart right now? It's funny. Um, honestly, it's always felt like that's always been true. I remember we were six people and, you know, I talked to this consultant from Mercer who was really, you know, focused on the innovation market, ended up, you know, later joining Omada, but he was like, man, good luck. It is the wild west. There's just thousands and thousands and thousands of offerings. And it's like, and uh, so I don't know. It's, I think it's gotten more dynamic. What's worked for us? I mean, a, a piece of it is just like n- never giving up, you know, and you got to like punch through the market and the, and the way you in healthcare do that is in my view, you, you really take the long game and, you know, you, you recognize that 
it's a very risk averse buying market. You recognize that it's unlikely that you will be able to shorten the sales cycles. So you have to kind of manage your business and raise sufficient capital against that. You know, you recognize that trust matters and you, you know, you spend that million dollars early on to, you know, become SOC 2 type 2 and get high trust. You get the accreditations. You do the clinical trial. Each one of those things is not only time intensive, but it's capital intensive and it's hard. And, you know, I think that adds up, funnily enough, to create, you know, pretty substantial moat for businesses like Omada because the unique needs of healthcare are not for the faint of heart. The clinical trials piece you mentioned is a really interesting one in part because all of these new companies are trying to build that data set, trying to build that track record. Meanwhile, the evidence base that you can find on Omada's website is quite deep across a range of conditions, across a longer period of time. How do you feel like that evidence base is making clear to the market that Omada is a, a trusted solution? Is that part of the sell that you know many of these employers or health plans may be having trouble finding elsewhere? Yeah, no, it, it is important. I always said we need to build the sort of company that could pass the medical director test. You know, it's funny, digital, you know, it's part of the zeitgeist, but fundamentally it was and maybe still is the underdog in, in care delivery. You know, it's kind of the, the, the new thing that needs to be tested and proven and, and tried. So, you know, yes, you could make the argument, like if you're spinning up a dermatology clinic, you don't need to like run peer-reviewed studies on your capabilities as a dermatologist. Like that's not a requirement. But but in digital, when you're doing something different, you will face a lot of skepticism otherwise, especially given the you know time-drawn history of what's been tried here. We just kind of recognized that that would be a need and got started very, very early. Credit to the teams, you know, I think we helped really set a standard that is very important to publish, uh, you know, in, in digital health. And you know, we put millions of dollars, uh, you know, a year into uh, clinical research. And that's, if anything, that's accelerating. One of the other valuable components, I would imagine, for employer and health plan customers is that in this world of companies pitching them every day on a new cardiology solution, a new obesity solution, a new musculoskeletal solution, Omada is covering enough breath that you can deliver all of those things to each customer. How do you find that you know what we would now call point solution and point solution fatigue is playing a role in setting Omada apart? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's interesting. It became a very interesting strategic question. And, you know, to some extent, kind of the, um, the story's not fully written. We had a pretty strong market hypothesis that expanding selectively would be the right strategy um, for the long game for really two primary reasons. The first you've, you've hit on, which is, my gosh, if you're a buyer and a benefits buyer and you're deploying, like, you know, Livongo for diabetes and Hello Heart for hypertension and, you know, Lark for prediabetes and, you know, Inge for musculoskeletal, you know, all great companies. But it's like that becomes very complex administratively. You're like, well, shoot, I have so many contracts to manage. I'm like, ever, they're all asking me to try to market to my employees to get uptake. And that sounds complex and, and it's hard. The thesis that Omada can come in is like, look, you're, you're, you have some primary care areas that you're likely interested in. We've selectively picked the ones that we think move move the needle for employees the most, and and those can be fulfilled by Omada holistically. And also on their merits, please study our solutions independently. They're incredible because you can't just say you're doing something and spread yourself too thin. It's not going to work. Like they want to like try your musculoskeletal experience, and they have to be great. So if you do that, then there's another argument, which is your employees. You don't also want them with comorbidities on like five different unsynced care plans. So we think that's the right strategy. Now, the market is still evolving there. We are getting more RFPs where they're consolidating. 
Um, so I think that that is a trend. The percentage of deals that are multi-product and you know in our pipeline continues to grow. But we're also, if a customer just wants Omada for MSK, we're comfortable with that as a starting point. So you have to remain you know a little bit flexible as as markets evolve um, from point solution to consolidated solutions. And given that breadth, you've integrated these care pathways. You're solving that complexity for employer and health plan customers. Of course, aiming to deliver the highest quality, most beneficial patient experience in a virtual setting. There's only, at least today, only so much that can be done virtually. At some point, many of these patients will require in-person care. How do you see Omada fitting into the broader care delivery network for a patient, knowing that a lot of that today is and has to be, to some extent, outside of your platform? Oh, that's an awesome question. And um, I had an analytical think on this recently over uh, Christmas. I just like took the library of 9,000 Cat1 CPT codes and like went through them all and was like, could you, could you do it virtually? Could you not? According to like some definition. <laughs> and then, you know, partnered with Chrissy Farr to, and Komodo to do kind of encounter data pre-pandemic to see like, well, what, what throughput of care on a percentage basis approximately, it's not going to be perfect, but approximately could even feasibly be done virtually. And we came out with about a third. So clearly, you know, two thirds of the care throughput requires in person. And, and that's just the truth. You can't just pretend that digital can do everything. So Omada is using that as part of our differentiation where, you know, we've made a commitment very vocally to the primary care community and that like we, we are not here to compete in any way. Like we, we are a complement. We do have a belief system that yes, five to 10 years out, you as a PCP may not have type two management on your to-do list like you feel and aren't paid for now. Um, but uh, we, we want to be a care partner. That way, you know, we have coordinated efforts between what that person might need in an in-person setting from the medical home, you know, and what we can do digitally. And so, you know, against that backdrop, there's both brand investments to make sure that that's what the market feels from us. There's, you know, integration investments, interoperability, kind of all the, you know, classics. There's coordination investments, and we're making all those. And I think it's a cool thing because, my biggest fear for Mata is, and, and, and frankly, this is digital health, digital health for large, is like we've got all these like random solutions that are sidecar to the healthcare system. You take that to its end state, if it doesn't evolve to be a more proper fit with the existing healthcare system, we, we've actually created more fragmentation. You know, we have a pretty big commitment to bit by bit, year over year, kind of chip away at that to create a very, very neat and complementary experience with in-person care. So if I was a primary care provider managing my patients, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and they were making use of the Omada platform, what would it look like to me for the information to flow from everything Omada knows about my patient, which as a physician must be unbelievably valuable information in my own management, to my practice, to the patient's in-person care team? It's a great question. So the punchlines from the listening we've done with the primary community on that exact question is it's like, who are you? Are you real and evidence-based? And send me summaries. And don't do anything clinically that would interrupt like my vision for this patient, my collaboration with them. Against that, what clinicians don't want is like raw glucometer data back. Like give me the summary stats and and how I can help. I mean, you could send infinite things. We've worked very, very hard to make the report, you know, really in the kind of the primary data that we send back, like really digestible, simple, uh, and actionable. That tends to land pretty well. And then it manifests, like, let's say one of our coaches and, you know, is working with one of our members and their their CDE as well as uh, looking at data off of their CGM and, and notices that, you know, this person probably needs their medication titrated. 
what we can do is hold accountability to get that person back to their PCP, make sure that they feel included and kind of create this world where it's like there's a Venn diagram between what we do and what they do and all of it's uh, orchestrated uh, seamlessly. In that vein, you know, a company like Omada, given the integration, given the work across specialties, certainly given the evidence base, seems really well positioned to prove to customers, the market at large, that you're generating improvements in quality and reductions in total healthcare costs. As many of these primary care providers similarly continue to enter risk-based arrangements and move into value-based care, how do you find that that evidence base or other aspects of the Omada platform are making the case that you are delivering the savings for a diabetic patient. There's only one healthcare dollar to go around. As you start to have multiple hands making the case that we're generating the savings, how are you finding that dynamic shift, especially given your goal to be a strong partner to those same primary care physicians? Yeah, that's, that's an awesome question. We are feeling more interest than ever from you know providers that have taken on risk. You know, My assessment of that market a couple of years ago was it maybe was not ready because if you're a provider and you just entered a risk contract, there's kind of like some foundational things you got to get done. Like you really need your congestive heart failure program set up. Like there's some things that, my gosh, if you don't get those done, your economics are completely underwater. So the organizations that have kind of trodden that path are now like, all right, well, what's next? And, you know, a lot of them are like, look, chronic care is really interesting because A, it's something that partners can do between visits probably more successfully than we can do and, you know, lower cost with higher return. B, we're faced with a primary care community that's completely overburdened. The record attrition, we've got one in five PCPs saying they plan to leave the profession in five years, and there's not enough kind of supply coming in. Meanwhile, disease, you know, epi is getting worse and the population's aging. So you're, you know, we've got this huge like talent shortage problem that's going to require different delivery models to allow our primary care infrastructure to, I was going to say, stay, stay resilient, but just going to hang in there, I guess is even better. Uh, within that, I, you know, I think that risk-bearing systems are more ready than ever. Now, now you do still suffer the problem that the average clinician does not want to treat a patient differently based on the insurance plan they're on. They, They wouldn't mind, but it's like they don't have a way to do that feasibly. So you do have to think, how does it work in fee for service? You know, how do you address the realities of the population that's not under a value-based arrangement. And so we're doing kind of a lot of thinking on that. And that's frankly, that's where kind of the employers that we've sold and the health plan coverage we have can really matter. You know, if we were to go to some of the providers in Minnesota, which is kind of a market where, you know, most of the major employers, most of the major plans cover Omada, it's pretty likely that your fee-for-service patients have Omada in your medical policy. So in that world for these systems, we're not saying you need to pay us in their fee-for-service, you know, patient population. It's like, just, just be an operational partner. And those employers are not only a major part of Omada's business, but a major, if not you know, the primary sponsor of health insurance in this country. As a result, there's long been the expectation or maybe the hope that employers would be the ones to drive change in the healthcare system. And there are examples of that, but on the whole, I, I think it's fair to say that that expectation hasn't quite lived up to everyone's greatest aspirations over the last 10, 20 years. How are you seeing this change, that sentiment from employers and benefit managers evolve as healthcare costs continue to rise, as employees continue to express discontent with the healthcare experience? What does that shift look like and where does Omada fit into it? I mean, you make an enormously good point here. And, you know, I think it's roughly 55% of the, you know, private 
uh, you know, uh, the commercial spend, you know, in the U.S. is borne through self-insured employers. So literally they're paying the claims directly. So if, you know, if you're not, if you're listening, you're not familiar with kind of the dynamics of self-insurance. Like, you know, I worked at Google. I thought I had an Aetna card. I thought Aetna was picking up the bill, but literally basically on a nightly basis pulled off um, Google's balance sheet when I went in to get a procedure across the street at Stanford. Costs are just extraordinary and employers have enormous power to, you know, push innovation as, as really heroes. I would agree with your assessment that there's more opportunity than is what, you know, is what's happening there. Um, and I think that's not through lack of desire, but, you know, perhaps just because kind of an evolution of capability. If I had the bandwidth to start a nonprofit, you know, right now, basically at the top of the list would be to build very active internships, recruiting, you know, postdoc partnerships from um, MPH schools into benefits organizations. You take a 10,000 person employer, they're unlikely to have the budget inside to like have an epidemiologist like as part of the core benefit staff. But 10,000 you know, person employer, that's probably 100 million medical pharmaceutical spend a year. And that population is going to have unique needs, you know, unique geographic kind of realities. And so if you have more clinical population level expertise inside your benefits team, I think it gives you a little bit more direction in where to pound the table and say like, look, this, this kind of, the trends here are just not acceptable. We need to kind of find solutions out there in the world to, to remedy that. And, and that, that spawns, you know, this really important flywheel of innovation. So there can, and I hope there will be more of that as the, as time continues. Omada has recently put out a survey that outlines buyers' attitudes towards virtual care. Could you tell me more about that and what you found through that process and how Amada may be shifting or confirming its strategy as a result. I would say the punch on assessment on the surveys, and I think this is a healthy thing where there's a recognition that virtual is here to stay, but there's also a recognition that's not enough to just do a find and replace in person to virtual. Cool. They had an in-person visit before they're going to do a virtual visit now. <laughs> like that's not, that's kind of what happened in COVID and it's completely inoptimal. But that doesn't really get us to what's needed. That just literally is slightly more efficient, saves people commuting time. Um, but it's not delivering care in a whole new way. That to me is the punchline. And that's a great thing because that, that's what's needed. You, you have to rethink how digital experiences, you know, hardware, communities, devices, software, all the things that you can do digitally, like actually can create different care models, not just all of a sudden I'm talking to my doc on a Zoom. To what extent do those survey results change your priors, confirm your priors on where Omada needed to be, what Omada needed to deliver for these customers? I mean, I think it's largely confirmatory. You know, when you do those, you're always hoping like, well, <laughs> do we need to change strategic direction based on the results? And this one, I'm like, no, nah, I think we're doing the right thing here. And then also there was, as per my comments, kind of a feel that you got to have these virtual care capabilities integrated, not just at the virtual level, but actually within the healthcare system to have maximal impact. So I expect that the market I mean, we're going to be pushing that. So but I do expect that the market will year over year pull for that. And you'll see kind of questions in you know, RFPs on, you know, how do you engage this, my employees, um, you know, medical home and in-person kind of care ecosystem, you know, in the support of their overall coordination and health. By all accounts, Omada has been a very successful company and done very well. You know, I think any of these newly launching virtual care companies would be thrilled to have the track record and the arc that Omada has had. And I think that success at this point might lead people to believe that every step of the way has been the right step and every decision has been the right decision. But where do you feel like, not big mistakes, but the big pivots were made that got Omada to this successful place where it is today? You know, what were the decisions that maybe didn't work out that you overcame or the circumstances that you had to get past to get to this point now? 
you know, I mean, it's never a straight line to success. So if you're, you know, interested in starting a business, just know that I've never seen a large flourishing organization that just was, you know, up to the right the whole time relative to feeling like you're going from strength to strength to strength. There's always challenges in each, in each kind of stage. You will as much for always make a whole host of mistakes. You'll also always do kind of a lot of things right. And that, you know, you want to just do more right than the mistakes, uh, you know, in balance. There's all sorts of like org building lessons. There's all sorts of market lessons. I think on the market, some of the things that I think we did right was one, our pricing model. So in the disease management space, there was kind of a precedent to charge per employee per month or per member per month. So it'd be like a buck, a buck for every employee in your organization. And then anyone who needed it had access to the solutions, which truth be told does create more revenue reliability, but it turned into, you know, kind of a poison pill relative to what happened with that industry because all of a sudden, if you're the disease management company, your margins get hurt if you get better utilization within the population. It kind of incentivizes you wanting to teeter on the line of like, well, we're helping enough people that the employer will see the value, but like they're, you know, and they won't kick us out, but we don't want to overhelp because like it'll compress our margins. So it's just not good to have like your pricing model not, not aligned with the unit of value. Um, so I once heard a benefits consultant to say like Omada killed the PEPM. <laughs> and I loved that. Uh, because we've always just charged on like the people that came in because like that's the associated unit of value that's where a cog sit so you know we're financially and operationally aligned with our clients which it sounds so obvious but that was actually pretty unique the second thing that i think we did really right was we found a way to contract as a covered entity to bill through claims we literally we took our clinical trials to the american medical association they issued you know first ever digital specific cpt code in kind of u.s healthcare history um, and that's, you know, it's cathode code. It just serves as billing infrastructure, but allowed us to like fit into their billing ecosystem without having them to create anything new. So we found kind of a hacky way to like use this code, like some modifiers, like max allowable to create almost like a value-based pricing model where currently it's a monthly membership fee that includes your whole scope of services, but build through fee-for-service claims. And, you know, what that enables is an employer doesn't have to like plan for that in their wellness budget. Like it's treated as proper medical expenditure. Um, and that was a that was a very very complex thing to figure out, but it was pretty transformational for our business. And, and since then, like it's become the norm in digital health organizations. I think, like you know, credit to kind of our teams at Armada, like, we really did um, lay down the you know the pavers there, and that's been really important. Speaking of moats, your ability to make the case and lay out the evidence that this is so impactful and so successful that it should deserve its own CPT code is something that it's hard to envision. A, you know, a company starting tomorrow having the range to do. That's a good point. We definitely could not have gotten that CPT without the trials. Yep, you're right. Shifting our conversation a bit towards the fundraising climate and capital markets, Omada raised a massive round of funding this year, a $192 million Series E round. What's the plan for that capital? The plan is to just use it in a measured way to continue to fulfill our mission. Bit by bit, you know, we've been improving operating leverage, you know, kind of doing all the things that you know, we, we need to ensure we do to, you know, when the time is right for Modic, live, uh, you know, reliably in the in, in the public markets here. And so it, the plan is to kind of leverage that capital to, to get there. I mean, from a product standpoint and innovation standpoint, as, you know, as part of this fundraise is there is this element of more of the same like integration across conditions. Um, we have made a big push to embed baseline behavioral health support in, in all of our condition lines, kind of a theory that if you have diabetes and you suffer from mild to moderate depression, you know, we have to have some capabilities there if we're going to address your diabetes. So, you know, though we don't have plans to do teletherapy or kind of anything that requires kind of more acute, more intensive intervention, we are, um, you know, embedding coach-guided CBT kind of as a baseline for those where 
they're comorbid with some kind of mild to moderate depression, which is very, very common in metabolic disease. So it's kind of a neat example of combining mind and body in the same place that we think is a differentiator in the market. We're continuing to invest. We have many, many open heads at Omada. We're being prudent because we want to make sure that if this downturn lasts like years, that's not going to be an issue. And you know, our, our business uh, is in a position to you know ride through as long as needed and get to profitability on this cash. So that is the plan. And we started to get a little bit shaky in the markets. And so, you know, ended up, you know, coming to the conclusion that kind of a private state on the private side was probably the better, the better thing for the time being. And we're, we're glad we made that decision. With that fundraising round in mind, you know, as inflation rises, as interest rates continue to rise, the nearly $200 million fundraising seems like something we'll probably be seeing, you know, less and less of in the, in the coming year or so. Many other Digital health startups have raised very large rounds and or raised rounds at very large valuations and subsequently have had to lay off employees. From your perspective as a company that may not be actively raising, but is certainly in tune with the fundraising ecosystem, how are you seeing this environment shift for startups that may have a more immediate need for that capital? You know, it's a tough fundraising environment. So it's hard to get access to capital. So I think truth be told. For companies where, you know, they may not have figured out kind of their business model or, you know, there's not kind of foundational unit economics, uh, you know, working or there's not kind of clear product market fit, um, you know, they, they may not weather through. Now, those companies, you know, may, may have innovated and contributed something great to the space. Maybe they'll find homes in other organizations and, you know, there's still kind of a, even despite the gloom, there's still kind of a, a strong thirst for talent and, you know, the labor market is still strong, not as hot as it used to be, but it's still strong. So I think that, you know, all those folks will find amazingly new ways to contribute to, to society. But I think it is a, um, you know, I think it's a uniquely difficult fundraising environment. I think it'll, it'll feel, you know, over the course of the end of this, this year in the back of 2022 and then the beginning of 2023, I think even worse. And I think the, the moment where it feels like, oh my gosh, is this ever going to end? That's probably where we're at. Like the point where you start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. that's usually how these things go. So you know, on the other side of every winter is a spring, and we'll get to that spring. It'll just require a little bit of patience. And as you mentioned, for those companies with exciting innovation, important property, finding new homes, thinking more specifically about Omada, Omada added musculoskeletal care through acquisition. For those companies that, you know, may have trouble raising the financing they need to be standalone companies, what is Omada's role in the M&A markets in being able to bring those companies not just into sustainable models, but you know, getting to patients in a way that can deliver that value? We'll always listen. Um, you know, I think that for us, M&A is likely to continue to be kind of the exception rather than the rule, at least as it stands to creating new clinical areas. And you know, reason being is kind of that second piece of integration across product lines is just, it's just significantly harder you know, through M&A, you can do it. In fact, the reason that we got so excited by Pfizera was it's just an amazing product. I mean, you know, we've had, you know, people download and try us and all the major competitors and they come back. That was a wonderful product experience. Like, like it's, um, the teams did such a just incredible job. So, and it, and it holds to our principles of really combining people and technology. I mean, it starts with a video visit with a licensed PT. We get you, you know, that, that clinical support basically immediately. Um, you know, versus waiting weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, you know, it's like within one or two days you've got the visit, and then kind of it blends that clinical capability with kind of an, a great product. And so it was just clear we all collectively saw sought some goal to create kind of an integrated experience and, and a really unique experience. And they were kind of cut from a tech 
cloth, so were we. Our, our tech stacks were pretty similar. So it's like um, it was clear we could get to the, the joint vision there. That wasn't going to be as clear with other potential companies in the space. And um, any new clinical area would have to have those characteristics, which kind of windows the landscape a bit. Do you see more acquisitions coming down the pike for Omada? You have the capital on your balance sheet. It's going to be that much harder for everyone else to raise the capital themselves at, at earlier stages. Are there any target areas that you're considering, or is this going to be more opportunistic going forward? Uh, you know, I mean, right now the plan of record is to stay the course with what we have. We feel that the buyers like the palette we're offering. Now, every single year we're going to re-ask that question and kind of listen to them. Like, what more are you seeing? What more would you want Omada to do? So, you know, strategy will change, but as it stands. The plan of record is just to focus, you know, at least for the foreseeable future on things we have. And we're not feeling like from our accounts, my gosh, please, Omada, could you do X, Y, or Z? But we'll listen for it because, you know, the world does change. And you alluded to this earlier that Omada had this opportunity to test the public markets and through this fundraising decided against it. It feels like Omada has been right on the precipice of that IPO for a few years now. And this latest fundraising round was covered explicitly as Omada gearing up for an IPO. How do you think about that step of entering the public markets? Why make the decision to wait as long as you have? And what benefits do you see from that when you finally make the jump? It's almost a philosophy thing as much kind of a practical thing. I, I do think that in the long road, it's a very healthy thing for companies to go public and be public. You know, it creates, if you do it correctly, I, this is kind of my my viewpoint at least, kind of the right pressures on the organization. You have to think about your your financials differently and you know, in a way that's, you know, as long as it's balanced with kind of long-term strategy and vision is, you know, I think, you know, balance kind of a, a healthy. That being said, there are many, many cons. One can always rush a company to the public markets if you want, you know, if it's a credible business and you have kind of, you know, sizable enough revenues, but that can be very problematic if you don't do it with careful planning. And and there's no, we've kind of taken a note, don't, don't rush it. It's just a capital event. We don't need the capital. You can access capital on the private side, you know, down the road. Yes, it does give you a little bit more, you know, optionality to different sorts of, you know, capital and maybe makes M&A, you know, a little bit easier, but um, I've kind of found a little bit of a misconception. It sounds like this cool, great, great, raise the gong kind of finish line. You know, the IPO, that's like the furthest thing from the truth. I mean, you know, IPO is like, literally, it's the starting line, it's the beginning of a next chapter. So um, we've just kind of felt like, despite all the zeitgeist and energy, uh, there are some CEOs, like, it's their dream to like, you know, ring the bell. Like, that would be cool, but it's not like, <laughs> it's not, I don't like, have that in my like, you know, like at Sean's like bucket list and wish list. It's not on there. It's to build a business. Certainly in the context of the wave of SPACs, Last year, that saw all of these health tech companies go public very quickly. And now, as the market has turned, certainly come down to earth, the opportunity to stay private longer, if you have the ability to raise that capital, which certainly Omada has shown, is definitely a benefit in unpredictable markets. Yeah, if you have high market volatility, it's, it's kind of, um, it can be tough. I mean, you're, because it, your stock price can, if it fall to the floor, even if at some point we'll go on the way back up. All your employees are like, it's happening here. It's like the, you know, it can be a very, very significant distraction to the business. Now, since we are an MBA run podcast, we always ask, what is your career advice to MBAs interested in this space? You know, I think if it's, if you want to start a company, I think it's good to join a startup, maybe spend a couple of years there, pick really any role, but ops, product, you know, where we feel the skill sets would work. Um, just so you see it and feel it and feel 
the excitement, kind of the pain. It's a very different experience. Um, you know, it's good to do that. So it's so I think that kind of that's one. And then the other is um, if you want to start a company, find a little side project like that is a business if you haven't already that like you kind of don't really care that much about. But like do something, build a website that you try to get sales and some solution, like literally anything, just because it's like you can kind of practice entrepreneurship um, and you'll learn like basics of like the just the core things you need to do to deliver value and all you know all that's like really useful so basically use that as like mini training before the real thing and then you know live live what it's like to be at a startup i think those are the two pieces of advice i'd provide and thinking about omada specifically when it comes to hiring and hiring mbas what are the sorts of skills and backgrounds that you get most excited about i mean we have a lot of mbas at omada the mba is usually not the the core reason like we'll, we'll hire. That's not the, that's an incredible degree. And I think you benefit from it and it gives you kind of breadth and skill set. It's like, what we want to see is evidence that you used it for something that like really progressed a business, not just thought about the business. So what have you accomplished either in your personal professional life that shows that you bring kind of a sense of, you know, creativity, energy drive, and like, just like speed and throughput, you know, to the organization. And we've seen, you know, many MBAs uh, deliver that at Armada, uh, you know, which has been a, you know, an, an awesome, awesome thing. And I have to ask for the parents of the dual degree medical students who you convinced to drop out at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> would you ever consider going back and finishing that degree? Uh, no, I don't think so. I'm like really happy with, you know, Omada, just kind of the space. And, um, you know, the 11 years of Omada has been like the best education I could ever imagine in terms of creation, like been such a privilege. I mean, it's uh, like, I love the mission. I love what we're doing to like, go from a company that's three people and having never, I didn't know what a VC was. I never hired anybody. I mean, I was like very, very green when founding Omada to like, you know, we're now what over 700, you know, scale business here has been like the best, you know, education. I've kind of emerged from Omada. Like I, I love my job. I'm, you know, I want to keep running really, really hard here, but I, I feel like I built out this palette of instruments to build things. So, and that's like, that's like been the coolest thing ever. So it's, uh, I think speaks to the, the career advice. Like you learn so much you know, being in a startup, like that's your career development can progress so quickly. And I've experienced a version of that myself. So I don't, again, I don't think it'd be the best use of my contributions at this point um, to go back to med school, even though it may be fulfilling in its own way. Sean, thank you so much for joining me on the Pulse podcast today. I really appreciate your time. Sure thing, Alex. I was happy to be here. 